two kilometers off the coast of San Francisco sits a 950,000 square foot island that became home to the most infamous prison in American history. The Alcatraz Federal State Penitentiary hosted the worst inmates that the criminal world had to offer. When you were sent to Alcatraz, you weren't sent there to be rehabilitated. Escape attempts were believed to be futile, but in 1962, four men proved that if there's a will, there's a way. I'm Jake Barton. Welcome to Historium. Episode 8, Jailbreak. Alcatraz Island was discovered in the early 17th century by Spanish explorers who were discovering the, what we now call, California coast. The island was named Isla de los Alcatraces, which means the Island of the Pelicans. It was reported that so many pelicans nested on the island that if you fired a gun nearby, tens of thousands of pelicans would take flight, which sounded like a hurricane to anyone listening. The island was utilized by the Spanish as a supply depot and later as the West Coast's first lighthouse, the latter of which remained until the mid-1800s. After the United States defeated Mexico in the Mexican-American War in 1848, the United States began scouting Alcatraz as a defensive naval position critical to defending San Francisco Bay. In 1850, everyone's favorite president, Millard Fillmore, ordered Alcatraz to be set up as an army base and training facility. Prison barracks were set up to house prisoners of war and captured pirates. By 1933, the island was transferred to the Federal Department of Justice to be converted to a high-security prison. Crime ran rampant in the 1930s, with gangsters and bank robbers finding plenty of success. In addition, poorly designed and understaffed prisons made prison breaks surprisingly common. Because of this, the Federal Bureau of Prisons needed an escape-proof last resort establishment, a place where they could send inmates who just couldn't be kept in a standard prison. That place was Alcatraz Island. In 1934, 137 prisoners, guarded by over 60 heavily armed federal marshals, were escorted by rail car, then by barge, to fill the new Alcatraz Federal Penitentiary. Infamous big-name prisoners from Machine Gun Kelly to Al Capone spent time at Alcatraz. The prison gained the nickname The Rock and was touted by many, especially the wardens, as being absolutely escape-proof. John and Clarence Anglin were born into a large family in rural Georgia in the 1930s. Clarence and John were inseparable as youngsters, becoming skilled swimmers that amazed their siblings by swimming in the frigid waters of Lake Michigan as ice still floated on its surface. They worked as seasonal farmhands throughout the American South during their teens and early 20s. Records show them working land from Florida to Michigan. Eventually, they grew tired of the long days of hard labor and decided to find a more efficient use for their calloused hands. They robbed their first bank in 1951. They moved around often, robbing the local bank at night and then skipping town. In 1956, the two brothers got caught by a night guard and were charged with armed robbery, despite their only firearm being merely a toy pistol. 
They were sent to Florida State Prison. The two brothers had spent the past decade breaking into places. How hard could it be to break out of one? Their escape attempt failed, and the Anglins were then sent to the higher security Atlanta Federal Penitentiary, where they met Frank Morris. Morris had been an orphan his entire life, bouncing from foster home to foster home, committing petty crimes. He was convicted of narcotics possession and carjacking before he reached legal drinking age. Morris was an actual genius, having an IQ of over 130. This was apparent, and shortly after they met him, Frank Morris escaped the high-security Atlanta prison to the amazement of the Anglin brothers. John and Clarence Anglin attempted an escape of their own, but failed once again. As a result, they were told that they were being sent to a new prison on an island in California. Along with a few dozen other inmates guarded by a small army of U.S. Marshals, the two brothers stepped off the barge onto their new island home. Massive guard towers glared down at the prisoners. Huge gray buildings lined with menacing barbed wire topped the island. The smell of pelican droppings and seaweed hung in the air. Behind them lay the entirety of San Francisco Bay, with the city, along with all of their old lives, now just barely visible through the fog. The prisoners were ushered to their new quarters. By a stroke of luck, or maybe just alphabetical order, John and Clarence were given rooms right next to each other. As months passed by, routine set in. The prison held some of the most dangerous men in the country so the brothers kept a low profile. All that changed in January of 1961, when they saw their old friend, Frank Morris, walking with his things into the cell next to them. Ten years after his escape, Morris had been recaptured and sent to a place deemed more escape-proof by the authorities. Immediately, he was out to prove the authorities wrong. The three men, along with another cellmate, Alan West, began planning their escape from the inescapable. For the next six months, the four inmates slowly began carving around the vents in their cells. Frank Morris stole a vacuum motor from the trash and used it, along with a sharpened spoon, to create a makeshift drill to speed up the vent widening process. The inmates in their cell block were allowed to have musical instruments because of their good behavior, so they would do most of their digging during the hour where the inmates were allowed to play music. The cacophony of sounds provided excellent audio cover as they drilled and dug through the walls of their cells. The openings that they carved out led into an abandoned utility corridor. Each night, once the holes were big enough for them to fit through, they would crawl out into the utility corridor climb up to the top of their cell block to a little area between the stacked cells and the ceiling of the entire structure. It was there they set up a small workshop. They collected or stole over 50 rubber raincoats and began altering them to create an inflatable raft just large enough for them to fit inside. They used heat from steam vents to seal coats to each other and stitched all the pieces together. 
Additionally, they also carved wooden paddles from planks. The final step was breaking a lock on the air vent to gain access to the roof of the entire building. For music hour, Frank Morris requested a very specific instrument, an accordion. Alan West got a job at the prison barbershop and began collecting human hair, while the Anglins created papier-mâché soap heads in each of their likenesses. Morris painted each of these heads with paint he had stolen from the maintenance shop, and West adorned the heads with human hair he had collected to give the dummy heads an exceptionally lifelike appearance. They would work in the workshop at night while their dummies slept peacefully in their beds. After six months of preparation, Frank Morris, John Angland, Clarence Angland, and Alan West were ready to begin their escape. After the last room check, the men opened the vents and crawled through. The previous night, Alan West had used concrete to shore up the area around his grill to prevent it from falling out and getting them all caught. However, the concrete hardened faster than he thought, and he was unable to remove the vent as fast as the others. The Anglids and Morris went on without him, hoping he would be able to catch up soon. The remaining escapees climbed to their makeshift workshop as quickly and as quietly as they could. They snatched their inflatable raincoat raft and climbed onto the roof. The guard tower stood ominously against the gray night. They ran to the side of the building and began shimmying 50 feet down a kitchen vent and then down a rain gutter. From there, they made a beeline to the inner perimeter fence, a 12-foot-tall barbed wire behemoth, and began climbing. Once over the first perimeter fence, they had to climb the outer one. As each inmate cut themselves on the barbed wire, they looked to the guard towers, praying a spotlight wouldn't suddenly shine down on them. Bloody and bruised, they landed on the other side, accordion, oars, and raincoat raft in hand. All three sprinted through the darkness towards the shore. At the northeast part of the island, near the hum of the prison's power plant, the three men began unfolding the inflatable raft. The escapees feared a siren would sound any minute. Frank Morris placed his accordion on the ground and used it as a bellows to inflate the raft. They worked fast. Around 10 p.m., under the light of the moon, the three prisoners entered the frigid waters of San Francisco Bay in their makeshift raincoat raft. They were never seen again. Back in his cell, Alan West had just removed his vent and was realizing he might be too late. He climbed to the top of the building as fast as he could and peered into the darkness. He couldn't see them. Devastated, West simply returned to his cell. It must have been a long night for him. By morning, every prisoner awoke to the bell and stood outside their cells. There were three vacancies next to Alan West. Guards rushed into their rooms to find dummy heads and clothes stuffed underneath blankets in each of the three cells. Alarms sounded, and within minutes, guards began searching the premises and calling the Coast Guard to begin a search. Multiple military and law enforcement agencies began an extensive sea, air, and land search for the three men. Alan West did his best to pretend he had not been involved, but his altered air vent was noticed from the investigators in the utility corridor. West participated fully with investigators, which is why we know so much of the elaborate plan today. 
As a result of his cooperation, West was not punished for his role in the escape. Over the next 10 days, a paddle was found floating beneath the Golden Gate Bridge, and a Coast Guard cutter found remains of raincoats that had been stitched together. After a several-month, high-profile investigation, the FBI concluded that the men most likely drowned in the harsh currents of the San Francisco Bay. They cited the fact that no car thefts or clothing thefts occurred the night of the escape. However, they didn't close their case until 17 years later. Less than a year later, another prisoner escaped from the kitchen window of Alcatraz and attempted to swim to the Golden Gate Bridge. He managed to do it, but was picked up by authorities almost immediately and treated for severe exhaustion and hypothermia. The fact that this prisoner escaped the island by swimming alone made authorities think that maybe they were too quick to deem the previous escape as a failure. A few months later, in 1963, Alcatraz Federal Penitentiary closed for good. Horror stories from the prison amplified on the mainland, and public support of the prison had been dropping since the early 50s. Additionally, the prison was incredibly expensive to maintain because of the cost of shipping clean water to the prison and waste from the prison. Necessary structural renovations were estimated to cost upwards of $5 million. Rather than renovate, the island prison was shut down for good and is now one of San Francisco's most popular tourist destinations. Alan West died in prison of lung disease in 1979. Depending on the outcome of the escape he missed out on, he either missed out on a chance at freedom or avoided an early death in the waters of the San Francisco Bay. In the following years, several small pieces of evidence trickled in to investigators. In 1993, an ex-Alcatraz inmate by the name of Thomas Kent came forward saying that he knew of the escape attempt from the beginning, but didn't get involved because he couldn't swim. He told an interviewer that the plan was to be picked up by Clarence Anglin's girlfriend near Horseshoe Cove just north of the Golden Gate Bridge. From there, the escapees would be taken south to Mexico. Kent died soon after his interview, and some authorities were skeptical of the truth of his claims. In 2011, a man named Bud Morris came forward claiming to be the cousin of Frank Morris. He claimed that on eight or nine occasions prior to the escape, he delivered envelopes of money to Alcatraz guards, presumably as bribes. He also presented an alternate theory about the escape plan, saying the inmates stole electrical cord to latch onto an outgoing ship. When investigators went back to the original logs, sure enough, they found that electrical cord was reported missing the night of the escape. His daughter, who had been eight years old at the time, said she was present at the meeting with Dad's friend Frank, but had no idea about the escape at that time. In 2015, the Anglin brothers' family finally came forward, saying that they believed Clarence and John had survived long after the escape. They showed investigators several pieces of evidence to support their claim. A Christmas card with a message that matches the brothers' handwriting coupled with a photograph of the brothers working a farm in Brazil. The photograph has been painstakingly analyzed by dozens of experts. The opinions of the experts range from a total forgery to completely credible, just adding to the mystery. 
To this day, the U.S. Marshal's case for the three men remains open. However, with each passing year, it's more and more likely that we'll never truly know what happened to those men after they escaped. What we do know is that their escape captured the imagination of the public. Typically, prison breaks are met with fear from the general public, with the hope that the criminals would be quickly recaptured. However, this escape was met with a quiet hope that they made it to freedom. And maybe they did. Regardless, Frank Morris, John Anglin, and Clarence Anglin were told that where they were held was escape-proof. And they proved them wrong. There's a strange postscript to this story, a small detail that begs to be told. For about a decade after the escape, flowers would be delivered to the Anglin's family home every Mother's Day. The tag always read, To Mom but it never said who it was from. But I think Mrs. Anglin knew. Historium is a bi-weekly podcast devoted to telling interesting stories from history. If that sounds like something you'd be interested in, check us out on iTunes where you can subscribe and leave a rating. Also, you can check out Historium on Facebook. As always, thanks for listening.